0: Hello and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex. I'm Chris Kaufman, and today I'm joined by Brian Kaplan, returning guest, great friend of the show. Brian's an economics professor at George Mason University and a New York Times bestselling author of the book Open Borders, as well as many other books. And his latest book is a beautiful collection of essays titled Voters as Mad Scientists, Essays on Political Irrationality. Brian, thanks for joining me again on the show. Fantastic to be here, Chris. So what's political irrationality? Why is it important, and how long have you been thinking about it?
1: Right. What is political irrationality? The best way of thinking about it, I would say, is it's intellectual error that goes beyond mere ignorance. Where ignorance is where you just haven't heard something or you haven't double-checked things. Irrationality is basically when you know it ain't so, where there is a level of great confidence in some stuff that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I think that's sort of the best way of thinking about it.
0: And has this been a topic of interest to you for a long time? Uh, It
1: is, yeah. My first book is called The Myth of the Rational Voter, Why Democracies Choose Bad Policies. Social scientists talk a lot about rationality in general. In political science and in related fields, we talk a lot about voter rationality or irrationality. The most popular model remains ones where voters are rational, where even if they make mistakes, they're not fully informed, still they've got common sense. That's sort of the minimum that social scientists assume that voters have. And what I've been arguing from my earliest work is, look, that's just not true. We can see that people that have common sense normally, when they get into politics, when they start thinking about politics, they just fall short of common sense and not merely in some partisan sense of, oh, people disagree with me, but just in a very neutral way, just the way that people will claim great confidence about issues they've never really even studied just because it's part of their silly political religion.
0: Is politics special that it engenders more rationality than other fields?
1: I'd say yes, and in two ways. The one that I've pushed very hard on is simply that in politics, unlike in normal life, if you make a grotesque mistake on purpose repeatedly over and over, the consequences for you are actually really trivial. If you go to the store and you keep buying stuff that you don't like, and you get home and like, who bought all this stuff? Why did I spend all my money on this junk? I don't even like this stuff. But you're the one that's wasting your money. On the other end, if you go and vote for a bunch of stuff that would be terrible, guess what happens to you? The same thing that would have happened to you if you would voted for the other stuff because your decision does not actually change the outcome. So in terms of incentives, I've just talked a lot about how politics just gives people terrible incentives, terrible incentives to calm down, just to think in a even semi-reasonable way to apply common sense skepticism. So there's that. But on top of it, there's an extra reason why people are so rational about politics, and that is that people care. People care. It has become the religion of modernity. This is not original to me. People have been talking about for over 100 years how politics is a new religion, but it's probably more true now than ever before in history. We can just see there's been a big falling off of traditional religiosity. It's been replaced by this political religiosity where you're political views, or just take the same social role and the same psychological role that going to church used to.
0: So people care more. If there were another field, I'm trying to think people might have the tendency to be irrational about controversies in physics Mm -hmm. or high science or something like that, but Mm -hmm. it just, people don't care. Yeah. I mean, a few few people people. do
1: get all worked up over this stuff. It's true, but most people just don't even understand the issue well enough to have an opinion kind of the issue that i would say has gotten really religious in recent months is just ai risk where there's some people even some very part people the smart people just saying you know this is going to end humanity for sure how can you not possibly see that you damn fools i think this is a pretty crazy position of course for any one issue they can just say i'm not the fool you're the fool and it's like all right, well Yeah, you're the one that's predicting something that's never happened before. And I'm the one saying things are going to keep going as they always have. Seems like your position is the more religious. But of course, that's not very convincing to the believer.
0: Your book is not primarily about uh, AI, but it's obviously a super hot topic. Do any particular thinkers or arguments uh, give you more pause than others about AI risk?
1: Yes, the ones that give me the most pause are the ones that say the least. (laughs) <laughs> so the one saying, you know, there's like maybe a one in 10,000 chance of something really bad happening. It's like, all right, you know, like, that's reasonable. Printing press probably caused the war's of religion. So yeah, I guess I can see that. But the more outlandish the claims are about total human annihilation, the sooner the timetable. You know, I I'd say the most reasonable view about AI risk is the highest risk by far is that humans will deploy it on other humans on purpose not this sci-fi stuff of the AI will become self-aware and kill us, but rather that a human being with bad motives will say, hey, AI, go kill those humans and the AI will do what technology does, which is do what is told.
0: I know Eliezer brings up uh, the possibility that the nuclear bomb would have created the chain reaction in the atmosphere that scientists were worried about at the time, that is there just some technical fact that Mm -hmm. if it happens to be the case, that some technology has this potential to, you know, get so smart that it recursively self-improves, and we're yeah. not—we haven't perfectly aligned it. Right. I, no, like, I that have that no idea kind of how knowledge. to think yeah. about this issue, yeah. but it's—I I do feel like, in my gut, I'm a natural optimist. But I have noticed, if I'm being honest, like I feel pessimistic lately. Just maybe it's just too all over my Twitter feed. I got to
1: talk with Eliezer for an hour at lunch, and I'll say I don't think he even tried to really go and, and answer any of these objections. I was pushing him. I mean, presumably he has a different memory of the conversation than I do, because he wouldn't think that he did as poorly as I thought that he did. If you're watching Eliezer, I still like you a lot. Uh, (laughs) But I said, "Is look, first of all, like, why not just think that the self-improvement of intelligence asymptotes, like every other thing ever observed in, in all of history, everything else asymptotes, why wouldn't this asymptote? And then on top of it, I said, even if the intelligence could become infinite, maybe the effects of intelligence asymptote. I said, look, I don't care how smart you are. If I give you 10 seconds to argue me into suicide, you're going to fail. No question. There's just no possible words that could ever be said that would get me to kill myself in the next 10 seconds. doesn't matter what you say. I don't care how
0: smart you are. And I think that's pretty obvious too. Combine words with images. They convince you that your family's about to die. If you don't kill yourself. It's like in 10 seconds. It's like, yeah, there's just images, deep fakes, whatever. No. Fair enough. Okay, back to irrationality. Did you coin the phrase rational irrationality? I at least, I'm the source of almost all uses. I believe
1: there's a couple of articles from decades earlier that used the phrase rational rationality too, but it never, never took off. And I didn't know about those uses when I started. I think Google Scholar didn't work as well as it does now by far when I started doing this research. So I would say that I am definitely almost the sole source of all uses of that phrase, although there's one or two uses that you can see in history before me.
0: Uh, And it's essentially some amount of just just what you were saying. It's it's rational for people to have irrational beliefs about Mm -hmm. topics that are exciting and interesting to them and don't actually have any practical impact, whether they're right or wrong.
1: Yeah. And I I think the very best way of understanding my idea of rational rationality is when someone looks in the camera and says, hey, Hillary will win the 2008 election for sure. There's no possible way things could otherwise. This is, like, this is stuff that people are actually saying. And it's like, all right, well, fine. Uh, how do would you like to bet? And oh, how about bet me at 101 since you're absolutely sure there's no danger that you would lose. It's just free money for you. Don't you want to entice as many people as possible to go and give you their money? And guess what? There's... Pretty much, I've never met anyone so crazy and so dogmatic that they will give me—they will bet their house against my penny on any topics they claim to be absolutely sure of. Which does not mean that they were lying or didn't feel really sure when they spoke. It just means that when you raise the cost of being wrong, then people turn up their dial of intellectual self-discipline, and then there's at least a sense in their in their innermost self of, ah, yeah, I don't actually really know that much about this, do I? I'm just talking.
0: I think on on sufficiently high betting scales even if you are confident Betting your house against yeah. a penny is well, if you're
1: really sure, if you're absolutely sure, and there's a lot of claims of absolute certainty in politics.
0: But I might be more sure that something about the bet will go wrong, or that you're a con artist. That I'm actually like th- that's more likely than I might believe that that's more likely than me being wrong and not want to bet you for that yeah. reason.
1: Yeah, you know, this is where you go and say, "All right, how about we go and we get some ironclad outside adjudication? All right, maybe the adjudicator is going to go and be corrupt. It's like not a reason to do to, against doing ten to one." Absolutely. Like no, I, I
0: think you're absolutely yeah. right about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, of course, flip it around. It's really the other person who should be worried. If you bet your house against my penny, it's not you that should be worried that I'm going to rip you off. <laughs> it's me that should be worried you're going to rip me yeah. off. No, you're not yeah, really exactly. going to give me your house.
0: <laughs> no, absolutely. It's insane. But the yeah. point is totally realistic if you're just talking about relatively ordinary amounts of money that still yes. have, give you very favorable odds. Yeah. People saying casual conversation all the time how confident they are about something mm-hmm. and yes yeah. they shut up quickly if you want to bet them and i'm probably no exception uh,
1: but you are did you recently lose your first public bet i have not lost any public bet yet i have won. i'm 23 for 23 i have a bet about ai performance that will resolve in 2030
0: that has to do with ai passing your uh, well, final pass, exam. ai has
1: to get a's on five out of six tests
0: Okay, and and where is it currently progressed to? Well, I mean, it, it's it's gotten
1: A's on the last two tests that I give, and those are not the actual target tests. So, yeah, I think I'm going to lose. Although the bet's pretty extreme, so I could just get lucky.
0: Okay, um, what do political scientists have to teach economists on these topics, and why do they disagree? This is kind of what we've been talking about.
1: Yeah, great question. Economists have so much disdain for political science in general, so much of a tendency to look down on them, and yet political scientists know a lot more than we do about a lot of topics, most notably what voters actually care about. Political scientists know public opinion very well. It's one of the best developed areas, and it's especially critical here because economists generally know negative about public opinion, Right. You know, there's just not knowing it, but economists just think that they understand what people are like.
0: They know what like a rational actor model would predict in a really yeah, simplistic form. Right, yeah, in a,
1: in a simplistic form especially. So economists, for example, are generally very convinced that people vote their objective self-interest, their material self-interest. We have a whole pile of public uh, public opinion evidence showing this is just almost totally wrong. Yet when the economists i have talked to, like talk the level of confidence they have in this nonsense is crazy high. Whereas you go over to political science and normally they've got- a, first of all, like they're modest about how, well, there's a bunch of different factors in public opinion. Hmm, that sounds like a reliable person to tell me there's more than one factor going on. But secondly, they will very strongly tell you normally, but you know, objective material self-interest is one of the weakest predictors of political views that we've ever found. And instead, what normally predicts people's views are what they'll call symbolic issues. So ideology, identity, you know, group identity, even when it's got nothing to do with your interest personally. Like, you know, why do American Jews support Israel? Well, is it because they have some plot to go and take advantage of government contracts to Israel or something else? No, look, American Jews identify with Israelis because they are fellow Jews. That's the obvious story. And that's the one that checks out in the data.
0: And why are economists so skeptical of, of this? I mean, it seems like it, When when I hear you talk about it, it seems like there's an obvious reason why a normal rational actor model would not apply to voting where it would apply to shopping. Why is this yes. hard for economists to accept?
1: Yeah, great question. Well, a lot of it is, So many economists have just invested a whole lot in a lot of research that assumes that shopping and voting are the same. And if they admit that I'm right, then they've got to go and basically take a flamethrower to all this previous research. So and if you've done it yourself, you don't want to take a flamethrower to your previous research. You want to go and hang on and say that it's really very good and blah, blah, blah. I often go and try to reach out to young people and say, look, I understand why the older people don't want their research torched. But it would be fantastic for you guys to torch all the previous research, because then it means that none of it's that barely anything's been done. And then you've got a whole generation to go and do low hanging fruit research where you just go and fix the wrong stuff that other people did in the past.
0: So, Are younger economists just as resistant to this? as I would as say the they're, not, they're definitely not as resistant now. There is sort of
1: a feeling of, yeah, but if I do this, then I'm going to be going against what all of the more senior people say they're not going to like it.
0: Their mentors and everyone who trains you know, them. That's
1: more strategic. So I you think know, the sincere resistance, I think, comes from researchers who have already made their name, assuming that people are voting their pocketbooks. And then the fact that they totally don't, obviously, they don't like that and they're, not, and they're not going to concede anything. Whereas young people, it's more of, well, okay, that makes a lot of sense, but I mean, I can't really make a career going against what almost all the referees think, so. I mean, I think that, that I mean, you know, you can go in public publish in political science and people are more reasonable over there in terms of public opinion. So in fact, you know, pretty darn good, I would say.
0: Same question about psychologists and psychology. What do, as it relates to political irrationality, what do psychologists have to teach economists? Mm.
1: They've done a lot less, actually. So I would say that there are a few psychologists who specifically do political irrationality and they are doing great stuff and it's important and I like their stuff. And when I meet them, they usually like my stuff. Uh, there is sort of an issue where psychologists are generally so uniformly left-wing that they—that it is hard for them to go and say, hey, maybe some of this very strong left-wing stuff is dogmatic and wrong. Uh, that makes it a bit hard for them to accept some of the evidence that I'm talking about, you know, so like, for example, when I say, look, you know there's this widespread denial of supply and demand but this fits the, the model fits the facts and there's gonna be some very left-wing psychologists going no it's very reasonable to rejection of supply and demand because it's just a new liberal blah 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 you know that kind of thing it's like all right so you're just gonna go and deny the totally obvious stuff you know like again you can try you know like I I'm definitely someone to try to keep, continue the conversation like if they say like you know it is just ideology the minimum wage causes unemployment like well you fill out a job application and you get to the salary requirements line do you put a million dollars an hour what do you think would happen if you did it's like well that would reduce your chance of getting a job but all right well isn't this the same basic kind of reasoning pretty obviously but you know like out of psychologists who explicitly do political rationality i think they're quite good you know Phil phil tetlock who i consider to be the best political psychologist of all time I'm a big fan of his work, and he's been quite kind to me as well. I think he actually wrote the blurb for Voters of Mad Scientists. so
0: He sure did. I'm looking but right that, at it. Phil, yeah. yay. Tell me if you think I'm wrong, but I think this collection might contain one of your most famous essays, or at least one of the essays that transcended your normal audience the most, and that's the one about the psychological Turing test. Do you, do you think there's a competitor there I- to Ideological, that? T- ideological I'm Turing. I'm sorry.
1: Yes. Yes, yes. I believe that, yes, it, it is in the book. So what's Uh, the
0: ideological Turing test? Right. Well, so there's the original Turing
1: test proposed by early CS researcher, Alan Turing, the just any early AI researcher saying that we'll just define a Turing test. Actually, I don't think he was so arrogant as to put his own name on it. Other people put his name on it after the fact. Uh, I'm not sure, actually. He might have encouraged it behind the scenes. (laughs) Yes. But the Turing test just said, if we can have a human being in one room and an AI in the other room and you pass inputs under the door and pass outputs under the door. And we cannot tell the difference between the human respondent and the computer respondent. Then we say that that AI has passed the Turing test. Now, a lot of talk about the Turing test. Philosophers have talked about it. My philosophy professor, John Searle, talked about it with his Chinese room argument. But anyway, I just took this idea and said, all right, well, like whatever its flaws, it's still an interesting idea. It still shows something. And then I went and heard this, read this piece by Paul Krugman where he was saying, look, the difference between a left-wing economist and a right-wing economist is that a left-wing economist can accurately describe what a right-wing economist would think, whereas a right-wing economist cannot do the same. All right, now I heard this and my immediate reaction was that's ridiculous. I went to a typical top uh, top five econ department where almost everyone is left-wing and their ability to describe my views is basically zero. And my ability to describe their views is great because I had to pass their tests. Are you all calling
0: right. yourself a right wing economist
1: for the purpose of this example? Yeah, yeah, example? sure. I'm, I'm happy to, you know, definitely Paul Krugman would no doubt call me right wing economist.
0: Okay. That right. So anyway,
1: good. Um, but then I realized all right, all right. So this is still, this puts us in a Paul said, Bry said situation. And this would be convincing to pretty much no one who didn't already take a side. But I said, huh, how about we go and we take a, a page out of the book of Alan Turing and we say, let's actually take Paul literally, let's go and do a blind test let's go and have paul and a bunch of other economists of different views have have them go into a room and go and write some statements and then have say me try to judge which one is which one's actually agree with me and which one's actually agree with paul and i can go and do the same and i claimed that like if we went and did this kind of an actual test that i would crush paul who I, and i by the way i consider paul to be considerably more intelligent than i am I'm an arrogant person, but I'm not so arrogant as to deny Paul superior intellect. But I think that Paul would actually be quite bad at emulating a right-wing economist. And that, on the other hand, I think I would have no trouble telling the difference between him and an actual right-wing economist. Whereas I think I would actually have very little trouble emulating a Paul Krugman type economist because I went and studied with him for four years. I took all their tests, were written by people like that. It would just be easy for me right now. Anyway. This exact uh, version of the ideological Turing test has not been done so far. If someone wants to go and cough up the money and gets Paul and me involved, I think it would be great fun. But there have been a number of other people who have actually taken my idea and have, in fact, done actual ideological Turing tests. There was one woman who went and did tests like this for defending religious views, both your own and those that are not your own, and then seeing if we could tell the difference there's been an uh, so I think that I've done a, a couple of posts where I just go over other applications of the ideological Turing test. It is inspired by John Stuart Mill's "Who knows only his own side of the case knows but a little of that." But the key thing is, it's very easy to pat yourself on the back and saying, "Oh, I'm so great because I can explain the views of people I don't agree with so well." But Well, yeah, lots of people think that. The point of a test is to not just take people's word at it and said, let's have an objective criterion where we can decide whether you are, in fact, good at explaining views you disagree with or not.
0: Along these lines, I know you you said this hasn't been done, obviously, with you and Paul, but have you participated in any related, even like smaller scale ones?
1: Yeah. So a friend of mine has a gap year program and a summer school for extremely good, You know, either real current high school students or recent high school graduates, and I have actually done a number of games with them, some which were actual ideological Turing tests where they were randomly told to either defend their true view or an opponent's view, and others where it was at least more obvious what their views were because I taught them for a while uh, one group, I just didn't know anything about the students. So I mean, other than just sort of doing demographic profiling, who do I think based upon their demographics would likely sincerely have a view or not? I didn't have anything to go on. A true ideological Turing test is totally blind. You don't know who the author is. You don't get to see them. All you get is a piece of paper, right? Or a screen with with, with their position. Uh, but yeah, I have done these. Actually, uh, I was able, I was uh, teaching summer school at Oxford and they got to use the regular Oxford debating hall for the students to randomly either defend their sincere view or an alternate view. Well, what's fun right about that one was that people are first sorted into groups of people who care about an issue, but then part of the process was they were told to go and converse with each other and basically do the iterative process of, all right, so what I would think you would say about this is this, is that correct? And the other person says, no, that's not how I've explained my view. And then after you hear it says, okay, so the corrected version would be this, like, so not quite right. And then both sides did this for both sides. Yeah, you know, that's sort of a higher level where you're actually really genuinely trying to improve your understanding of their, their view by looking at a person who holds the view right in the eye and conversing with them and, and then saying, here's what I think you think. Is that correct? No, here's what I really think. Okay, now here's what I think you think. How's that? And you just keep doing it until the other person will say, I'm satisfied.
0: That is something that I've done. And i, I it's actually freeing sometimes when you're arguing with people and you don't think the argument's going to go anywhere to realize that maybe a more realistic mm-hmm. and achievable goal of argument sometimes is just to set yourself the goal of clearly understanding what yes they believe
1: yeah i mean what i always tell students is when you meet a famous advocate of a view you don't agree with don't argue with them just ask them questions see what they say yeah you know, you're not going to convince the world's most famous <laughs> pro-lifer but you can learn something
0: yeah, very true. I've I've, it, I've been tempted before, this isn't like a, an official ideological Turing test, but I have been tempted to make like fake accounts and just see if I could pass myself off in Reddit groups and Twitter and stuff as yeah. like a, a sincere leftist or MAGA person or something arguing yeah. with someone. I yeah. feel like I could.
1: It's much easier to argue as a typical angry member of an uh, angry adherent of a view than to argue as a really good thoughtful version. That's why like me trying to be Paul and Paul trying to be me I think would be a big challenge. I don't have any doubt that Paul could just imitate just like a regular dumb person (laughs) with any view,
0: that you'd do fine. But his only tell would be, his vocabulary would be too large. I felt confident when I was reading your essay that I could be pretty good at something like this with someone comparably educated to me. I don't think Mm -hmm. I could beat Paul Krugman. But your note about how you could be defeated struck me as very applicable, probably to most people, who took the time to read the opposing positions, but not to study them anthropologically and understand mm-hmm. how what gets yeah. them emotional, what kind of terms are popular in their world. Mm-hmm. Those things are tells. Yeah. That.
1: yeah, like I remember I was once watching an ideological Turing test on pro-choice versus pro-life. And basically you had someone who was in fact pro-life arguing pro-choice, and he just described the position as you know we on the pro-abortion side. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, you know, people, pro-life people don't, are not going to call themselves pro-abortion. So like, yes. keep this, there's a slip of the
0: tongue. Hey, everybody. This is Chris Kaufman. And I just wanted to take a minute to thank everybody so much for listening to my show. This has really been a dream come true for me to be able to speak with scholars that I admire and read books every week that I'm always excited to read. This is still a small show, still a new show, still growing And I appreciate everyone listening so much. If you want to help me grow my show, the simplest thing you can do is to write a review, just a short review, a sentence or two on Apple Podcasts, or just recommend it to a friend. So I'm just reaching out to you to beg you humbly on my knees to please do that. I'm going to try not to bug you too much about it, but here I am bugging you. Anyway, back to the show. Um, You've got a great essay in here. That was a perfect response to something I've heard a lot in my life. The essay is called, I'm too busy fighting tyranny to <laughs> feed my family. Um, and, and the order of how you do that essay, the way you start it without it being clear. And this is, I think, just a good tactic in general. You, you start the essay without it being clear what you're going to argue for. And then it becomes apparent after you've maybe already <laughs> tricked someone into coming to agree with some part of your, your perspective. Yeah. But can you describe what that essay is about?
1: yeah so it starts off with a thought experiment you got a friend named john and he's a total political junkie all that he does all day is go to rallies and he's on his internet activism he spends all the family money donating political causes and then you go and discover that his kids are badly neglected they don't have clothes they're hungry and uh you say you're like dude john like your kids are hungry your kids don't have clothes like why are you going and spending all this time in politics instead of taking care of your basic responsibilities And then per the title of the essay, John's response is, I'm too busy fighting tyranny to feed my family. This is one where almost everyone thinks that Paul is a terrible, terrible person, not just terrible dad, but a terrible person overall, because we think that you have a higher, more more fundamental responsibility to take care of your family than to go and fix the world. You could then say, all right, well, what if you could go and sacrifice your family to go and save the planet or something? All 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 right, maybe that, but John's not doing that. John is just going and being one additional activist in a sea of other activists. He's not going and assassinating Hitler at risk to his own family. He is just going and indulging in this activism, which barely does anything. Meanwhile, he's neglecting his fundamental parental responsibilities. So that's where I start. Then I turn over to the real motive of the essay, which is all the people who say, look, I don't care about immigrants that are fleeing horrible conditions in their countries. They should stay home and fix their countries, right? They should stay home and fix their countries. And to this, I say, look, it's exactly the same kind of thing. What are the odds that one immigrant in Honduras is going to be able to go and fix his country? Almost none. All right. But what are the odds, on the other hand, that he can go and make sure that his kids have enough food if he goes and moves to the U.S. and gets a job? Really high. So I say that actually he is doing the responsible thing. He was focusing on his primary responsibility, which is to take care of his family, not this remote additional possible duty to go and fix his country, which his ability to do so is very low. And then after I make that point, I say, look, and on top of all of this, the mere fact that you recognize your country is screwed up does not magically give you the ability to know what's wrong with it. So I say, look, most activists just make things worse anyway, obviously. Right, If you just look at the typical revolution, why do revolutions happen? Because of activists. What fraction of revolutions make things better? Pretty much zero. right? Maybe you want to go up to 10% if you're some kind of big fan of the American Revolution or whatever, but ordinarily revolutions make things worse because activists are very eager to go and cause a giant bloodbath to get their way. But they are not very eager to say, huh, what reason do I have to think that I would, my, me and my buddies would actually be any better than the people that are placing, especially after subtract out the giant cost of the intermediate bloodbath. So, yeah, I say that it is a terrible idea to encourage would-be immigrants to engage in activists. And if it worked, they would probably just mess things up anyway because... Just the fact that you know your country is messed up doesn't magically give you the ability to know what's wrong with it. Most people are never going to be able to figure that stuff out. So better for them to just go and move to a place where they can fulfill their deep responsibility to take care of their kids. I'm he- too busy fighting tyranny to feed my family. These are words that you should not say, that you should only say ironically or sarcastically. It's like, but oh, these I'm are too busy things fighting tyranny to feed my family.
0: That is something that is advocated. I don't know if it's really sincere, if it's just kind of one of a litany of complaints that people want to bring out if they're very skeptical of immigration, yeah, is okay. Sure, it's better for them, but they should really focus on fixing up their home. You should clean up your own room before you tell other people what to do. Which is kind of a gross disanalogy. It's you're not yeah. actually telling. Especially because most own immigrants
1: room. are apolitical and just want to get a job and keep the, keep their head down.
0: And saying get your own affairs in order sounds plausible when you're actually thinking about your own affairs. But this isn't <laughs> your own affairs. Yeah. This is fixing a yeah. country, which nobody really can do. Certainly not ordinary Uh, Like I often
1: ask audiences, in order to do this, you would have to change the mind of a country. Has anyone in the audience ever changed the mind of a country? (laughs) (laughs) I've gotten a few joke hands going up, but no one seriously claims that they have changed the mind of a country. I know I haven't.
0: Yeah, even people who are like yourself, who have a decent shot to push the needle of a small subset of the country to think a little bit more like you.
1: Yeah, I mean, the main thing that I have actually successfully done in terms of improving the world is I've convinced several hundred people to have extra kids.
0: From selfish reasons to have more kids. Yes,
1: Yeah. And from, yeah, that that book and really blogging. So I've got a lot of confirmation. You know, I just had a friend of mine say, I got her from three to seven. And she just says, like, you did it. Your words got me to, got me to go from <laughs> three to seven. And I'm like, all right. I mean, that's pretty damn good. Who else can uh, say that?
0: Yes, my fiance I'm sure is listening right now, and and she's probably laughing because I think we've had this she conversation. Want doesn't want she seven. doesn't want seven. Yeah. Tell her why oh, she so, should yeah. have seven I mean, kids. Even Brian. I tell people,
1: don't decide you want seven when you when you have zero. I met a kid who had like no kids at all, barely you know didn't know anyone's family with kids. Is like, we're going to have six? And I'm like, look, oh, you're just, just giving her ammo. Have, now. Have, like, you don't have to decide yet. You can just have one, and then keep you know keep adjusting. So you're saying
0: start with four, and then work our way up. <laughs>
1: If you get pregnant with quads, I would say do it.
0: Done. So since we were just talking about immigration, I'm curious about something. You have some essays in this book that have to do with immigration, some that have to do with housing, and both of these topics are near and dear to your heart. Mm -hmm. So what, if anything, is wrong with this argument? Land is finite. So if we get more immigration, housing costs are just going to go up. Right. Great
1: question. Uh, So two answers. Uh, first of all, even if it were true, it would not necessarily be true at our current margin. We'd have to fill up all the land. If you've ever driven across the United States, you might notice the land is not all filled up, not even remotely close. Okay, what about like, just in about, one city? Yeah. If you think about it a bit more, uh, then you'll realize wow, uh, it's not just a matter of land. Like, like we, we don't need land for housing. We need space. And space has, wait, how many dimensions again? All oh, right, three. Right now, in earlier times in history, this didn't do very much. They could maybe build a two or three-story building without it collapsing, but we now have amazing technology for building skyscrapers that are forty stories tall with barely any increase in the cost uh, relative to. Like basically, you can you know, double the height the height of the building for double the cost. We can build ones that are hundred stories or more for some additional cost, but not that much. And if you then go and take a look at the most expensive cities, I guess you're you're in the Bay Area, right? Correct. And I assume you've flown over the city at some point. Yes. You have skyscrapers on maybe 5% of that freaking peninsula. Yeah. You could have, you could easily multiply the number of people living spaciously on, on that peninsula by a factor of 10 using existing technology. If you'd only get the law out of the way. So yeah. So while it's true that, the, that we can imagine some number of people so great that we have just blanketed the planet with skyscrapers, but that we are nowhere remotely close to that, So within the range, the rent, we can still very easily go and produce a mass amount of housing with no increase. Or really what I'm saying is that we can deregulate and the the price of housing will crash, crash down rock bottom, something like half of what it currently is nationally, probably in San Francisco. I think it could go down to one-tenth of what it's currently at. At this point, of course, it would be even more appealing to have a lot of immigrants come here than it is right now. But... You know, we could easily go and put in a billion without any big, without it being any big deal over the course of a few decades, but just build it. It's not that hard.
0: Do you think there are currently many examples of cities that are much less regulated in housing and that do not like a, a normal situation for a good is that you increase the demand prices rise that incentivizes more production and competition mm-hmm. prices fall back down. Is there any reason to think that housing shouldn't follow this pattern if mm-hmm. regulations were out of the way?
1: Not only is there no reason not to think it, there's a very strong reason to think this is one of the prime examples of the model because of the three-dimensionality of space and this technology of building skyscrapers that we basically are almost totally wasting. We barely use it to anything. We use it to maybe 5% of the capacity right now because of regulation, because of regulation of building heights and related regulations that just make it really hard to actually build skyscrapers. But you take a look at those skyscrapers built 100 years ago, they're not collapsing. They are built with a lot less regulation. They're fine. It's just our modern paranoia and negativity that's stopping us from going and building a vastly larger number just like them. Do and you're doing the it really work- quickly, too. I mean, like another really big regulation besides just height restrictions, we just have a lot of regulations in the book that just make people wait for no reason. So it's very common that now, again, the Empire State Building is built in under two years, start to finish. Ooh. All right, I'm not. I mean, there might have been a little bit of approval process, so, but I not much, right? Whereas now, you'd be lucky to get it done in ten years, right? And is because we we have worse technology for building stuff than hundred years ago, ninety years ago? No, it's because now we have to fill out a pile of paperwork, and then we have to wait for it to be approved, right? During COVID, you might remember that the FDA like got all of the information on the safety of the new vaccines, and then they said, okay, well, we're going to wait three weeks before we, we we meet again to, to vote. And it's like, why are we waiting three weeks? Why aren't we just lock them all in a freaking room and say, read it and then vote? You can't go home until you have read everything there. You know how to read people, right? And you say, well, then they might not read every page. Yeah, guess what? They didn't read every page as it was, obviously, <laughs> right? It's just them and their incredible pompous arrogance saying, well, our rules say that there's a three-week period for review. It's like, you know, people are dying in droves. Just read your stupid reports where you basically have to just trust the pharmaceutical companies anyway. You're not doing your own experiments. So what in the world are you talking about anyway? And then just prove it and get out, get the hell out of the way. But that's not how the, even the highly expedited approval system of Operation Warp Speed worked. And it's definitely not how housing approval works.
0: Are there any cities that approach what you're talking about, that, that do approach this? Japan amount? is much better. Their
1: only issue is their population growth is negative, so they just don't have as much reason to build stuff. But they actually build something like four times as much per capita every year as California does.
0: But Tokyo in particular doesn't have strongly negative population growth, I think. It's like yeah, stable so, or and, slightly and, positive. And,
1: and you, if you go there, you can see they're building tons of stuff.
0: And yes. housing prices in Tokyo are relatively stable? Yes, housing prices stable. Have, you know,
1: have been flat for a long time, yes. It's one of the okay. cheapest cities. I Meaning, again, it's it'll be mostly it's one where prices have not increased. Now, there's still still a question of it seems like most people there are living in fairly small places, but it's not because housing is getting more and more expensive over time. It might be still a bit expensive relative. You know, it's probably still expensive per square foot, but it's not going up over time. It's very flat. Now, yeah, as to, as to what the whole thing is going is going on there. I was I just went to Japan for the first time. It's definitely a very different culture and a lot of things about the country was confusing. Furthermore, there's not that much written in English about Japan. (laughs) I mean, I've read every article written in English about Japanese poverty, and it wasn't that hard. I've read like there's like 20 pieces ever written in English about (laughs) Japanese poverty. I've been trying to go and find someone who speaks fluent Japanese and knows the data to go and do some stuff that I want them to do about Japan.
0: Is this for poverty who to blame?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And specifically for the success sequence, because it seems like when, you know, like, Once you understand the basic facts about Japan, namely, they have something like, you know, like almost everyone finishes high school, almost every adult male has a job, almost every kid has, lives with his dad. So you put those three things together, and it just seems like there should be almost no serious poverty in Japan. But from the current data, it's a little bit hard to see this, probably because the measures of poverty are crummy anyway. So they sort of set the threshold too high. You know, if your dad works at 7-Eleven in Japan, this doesn't, you know, you might still be below some poverty line, but it doesn't mean you're actually in any serious want. Whereas in the U.S., there probably are a lot of people, especially without government help, would just be in dire want because we've got the bad answers to those three questions. You know, like, did you finish high school? Do you work full time? Uh, Do you live with your dad? Right. As, you know, do you live with two parents specifically, two married parents?
0: Let's back up. Well, we were talking about something and revolutions came up and you had mentioned well, maybe some revolutions are successful if you're a big fan of the American Revolution. Turns out you're not. And that essay is in this book. So why are you such a traitor, Brian? What's wrong with the American Revolution? Well,
1: I say you should always be thinking about what could have happened instead. What what would have happened if the U.S. had just taken the path of peace? And I think that it would have been at least as good on balance if the U.S. had just just basically waited until they could get independence peacefully like the rest of the British Commonwealth did. So here's the thing. The American Revolution was very far from bloodless. It was not the worst revolution in history, but it was, it was also no cakewalk. There was a, a lot of violence. A fairly large share of Americans moved to Canada to escape fear of what would happen. These are basically your loyalists. I think there's a misinterpreted quote from John Adams saying that a third of Americans did were loyalists. I don't think it actually says that. But still, there's no doubt that a lot of Americans were loyalists or just didn't care. Uh, there is a fairly high death rate per capita during the American Revolution I'm trying to remember how high it was I think it would actually you know like, not as bad as the Civil war I think it might actually be the second highest death rate because it's the other big one that's fought on American soil I think that makes sense yeah all right and then what did it what did it really improve so I say look I often ask people right so what policies improved as a result uh, well we no longer had taxation without representation yeah we had taxation with representation who? wonderful <laughs> all right and then, Say, look, there's two policies that are that are likely worse. Not absolutely sure, but if the U.S. Had remained a British colony, I think that it is more likely the U.S. would have peacefully abolished slavery when the rest of the British Empire did, and also more likely the U.S. would not have been so genocidal against the Indians. These are the two worst things in all of 19th century U.S. policy, right? And then in terms of anything else, so I just say it's not clear that it would have been worse overall. Like uh, you might have said, then the U.S. would have been like Canada, all right. Um, So Canada, but also less Indian genocide and peaceful abolition of slavery sounds like a pretty good deal.
0: Yeah, I I mean, I liked reading that essay. I was influenced a long time ago by Howard Zinn has an essay where he goes through one by one questioning the revolution, the Civil War and World War II as being Mm -hmm. America's three good wars and raises Mm -hmm. definitely some of the points that you that you brought up. Howard he's Zin very Zin much on the left but...
1: of uh, latin american revolutionary wars but uh i think <laughs> i think that's Vietnam, almost
0: that's be, almost yeah. certainly certainly true and <laughs> the same thing is probably true for chomsky uh but either way i think i yeah. i think his argument yeah. was pretty sound on that yeah I mean, um, I,
1: uh, so i didn't have it in this book but i have another essay called how not to be a pacifist all about howard's in
0: and your concern is that you're a pacifist but some pacifists uh, are a little bit too keen on making excuses for or even saying nice things about authoritarian regimes? Yeah. I mean, I I think, I mean, in fact, I think it's usual.
1: Most, you know, most pacifists are not real pacifists. They don't like some particular governments, often their own, and then they act like their government's the worst one that exists. And it's like, well, there's these other ones. What about them?
0: How do you feel about the tendency to just get more worked up about, the abuses of your your own society the the people that are closer to you i think there are probably a lot of anti-war and pacifist people who have nothing nice to say about putin but they just can't get worked up over his crimes like they can get worked up over u.s crimes is that the same mistake
1: yeah well so there there's this classic argument that people like that make which is i can influence policy in my own country i can't influence policy in russia this question either influence policy in this country that's amazing (laughs) i can't How, how do you do it Right. So I think that's pretty phony, especially when you're alone with them and they don't have they know they're not going to influence you. And you can just tell how agitated they are about some things and not about others. I've been talking relatedly about how almost every leftist that I know hates Jeff Bezos more than they hate the Saudi monarchy. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, look. Jeff, like, made billions of dollars, creating the best store that ever existed. He's not. But he's got
0: like, a big yacht, Brian. Like,
1: he's just like a regular guy. Like, what's so bad about Jeff? Whereas the Saudi monarchy, like, this is, as someone once said, they go, "This is the ISIS that won." You know, like, a group of <laughs> of Islamist fanatics who took over a country with fire and blood, and then they got and they managed to make hereditary, and they continue to tyrannize over this whole country, living in the lap of luxury. Monsters, but they just don't seem as angry and it's not be really because they think they can influence America, but not Saudi Arabia. It's because, yeah, they, they like, they're, they, they're mad at Jeff Bezos because he's part of their society and they care about their society and like, Oh, we're a Saudi Arabia. It's like, all right, well, whatever, let them do whatever they want over in their desert. Who cares?
0: What if it's really because you're lazy and you just, you read the media that comes your way. Like it's just so much more, oh. I don't know if this is quite yeah. true. I, I know that I can find myself getting outraged by authoritarian regimes if I have mm-hmm. occasion to read about them. And sometimes I'll go on some kick and I'll be like, I, mm-hmm. I'm really interested in learning about mm-hmm. the history of this particular era in China or something. And I will. And and I get all worked up. But most of the time, uh, mm-hmm. I have a news feed that informs me a lot about uh, American foreign policy. And I spend a lot more time getting mm-hmm. outraged about that.
1: You know, what I would say is that... What's the, what's the right way of thinking about it? I don't yes, think the, I get into the laziest of thing
0: of all is not to
1: pay any attention. Yes. All right. So if you say it's just a matter of laziness, well, great, just don't pay attention. And then you will no longer have selective outrage. You just won't have outrage, which honestly is probably better for you anyway. Uh, and um, maybe better for the world too, if you are just letting demagogues manipulate you, which is what most people are doing. I mean, if you really just felt like, well, I just can't help it. I mean you know what i've done i've actually told twitter that i live in guatemala because i don't want to get u.s news i, I, I i've been in guatemala i'm more curious i mean I, I feel like i learn more about the world by hearing about what's going on in guatemala than with the u.s where i have like all right i think i feel like i have pretty much got my pulse on america at this point i know what america <laughs> are like uh so guatemala's you know i learn more i mean i will say even when i get more guatemala stuff i don't get worked up over it the same way that most people would but i mean honestly like i'm I'm always trying to not get worked up over things. I, try, I make a conscious effort to not allow that. Uh, you may have heard of the maxims of Marcus Aurelius to uh, how to maintain equanimity in, in a world of wickedness. Tell me. Basically wake up every day and just say, there are going to be horrible things that will happen. If I can do something about them, great. If there's nothing that I can do about them, there's no point in me being upset about them. You know, does it work perfectly? Of course not. I'm a human being, but is it better than nothing? Yeah, it's a lot better than nothing. I mean, definitely when people are really into the news and want to keep telling me, I say, Well, can you please, I, 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 the reason I don't watch it, I don't want to, I don't want to know. And they often are puzzled or angry about that, but it's like, well, <laughs> I'm just as just, just a favor to me. You don't have to agree with it, but I just don't want to hear about the news.
0: I do understand that. In fact, I, I read an essay by you. I think it was by you. It might have been Jason mm-hmm. Brennan, actually, years ago, that, that really did influence how much news I read. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can tell me if this sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. But the advice was basically to, if you're interested in these kinds of things, watch less news and read more history, history. Yeah, and social yeah. science. Yeah, that was me. Okay. Well, that did have a big impact on me, and I, yeah. I don't follow it perfectly, and mm-hmm. probably foreign policy yeah. news is the big exception. Yes. Right. I mean, honestly, like the
1: main news that I follow is the stuff that's directly relevant to me, what's going on with universities. This actually does personally affect me. and the weather. affects my family. So, yeah, I mean, like, I'm totally willing to admit that I don't think wokeness is close to the worst thing in the world. However, it's one of the worst, it may be the worst thing in the world uh, that uh, is affecting my family. So that's why I'll say, yeah, like I'm interested in this and I care about it because it's something that's directly affecting me. And it's also something I can do about it. And I'm in a good position to do something about it because you know, like I am a tenured professor who doesn't agree with what universities are doing. People will listen to that
0: speaking of wokeness, or maybe this only mildly fits in, but what's your simplistic theory of left and right? Ah, the simplistic theory of left and right. Yeah. Glad you asked.
1: There are a lot of different stories that people have about what is the distinguishes left and right. And the idea, of course, is not, you're going to get a theory that explains every single leftist, every single rightist that's just too diverse, but sort of to figure out what is the general pattern here? What's really going on? Like a lot of people want to say, okay, well, left is more in favor of equality, and the le- and the right is more is less in favor of equality. All right, so that's a story. Or Scott Alexander has one saying, look, the left is what you do when you're thriving, and the right is what you do when you're trying to survive. All right, so I say all of the other theories really just do not fit the facts. Especially, they at best they fit the facts of a few countries during a few years. But I said, look. We've had these concepts of left and right since the French Revolution, when the French Parliament started seeding people from left to right based upon their ideology, and we have them all over the world. If you look at Wikipedia, movements around the world get classified as left wing or right wing. So if we wanted to go and summarize what, what the left all over the world for the last 200 years has in common and what the right all over the world for the last 200 years has in common, what would we say? And this is where we come to my simplistic theory of left and right, and the simplistic theory, which... Per the label or per the title, it's openly admitting it's not a perfect theory. It's just getting the very rough outlines, but still, the simplistic theory is the left is anti market and the right is anti left. A lot of people say, no, 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 the, no, the right is pro market. I say, no, that's what people who are left wing think the right is like. But if you know right wing people, you realize there's a lot of complaining about markets among the right. There are pro market right wingers and there are anti market right wingers. So, what is it that makes them all right wing? What makes them all right wing is they don't like the left. That's what makes them all right-wing. On the other hand, among the left, you'll have people that are more and less pro-market or more and less anti-market, but you can't really be on the left and just say, markets are absolutely fantastic. I love them in every way, total, pro-market, the end. But you're not left-wing if you say that. You just don't fit in. Right now, I notice I say anti, but I but people often misstate my view as the left hates markets and the right hates the left. I say that's turning up the dial of intensity too strongly. I say, rather, there's a range. So the the word that I think best describes it is the left has antipathy for markets. The right has antipathy for the left. It is a distaste. Sometimes the distaste is mild, sometimes the distaste is intense, and sometimes, of course, it's murderous, right? But the way I like to think about it is this. Imagine that we have a time machine, so we're able to go and get leftists from the last 200 years all over the world into a room together, and we say, write a consensus position paper. And we go and we do the same thing for the right. We get right-wingers for the last 200 years, all in a room, write a consensus paper, right? What will those two papers say? I say the consensus things that the left will be able to agree on is a bunch of complaints about markets, and the consensus stuff that the right will be able to agree on is a bunch of complaints about the left. That's my story.
0: Is it fair to say if the left is anti-market, then the right is anti-anti-market or anti-opposition to the market?
1: No, because, again, there are lots of anti-market right-wingers. So fascism, it, you know, a lot. You know, Mussolini was the head of the Italian Socialist Party before he founded the fascist movement. He remained critical of capitalism his entire life. You could say that he, like, he, he was not as anti-market as the Marxist-Leninists that he left behind. Like, like he, you know, and what's going on? Well, of course, if you are a Marxist-Leninist, any, the slightest deviation from nationalizing everything in the entire country shows that you're right-wing but that's just a totally crazy, dogmatic, fanatic, sectarian definition. Rather, what you'll say about Mussolini is he had the common sense to realize it was a bad idea to try to seize the peasant's land at gunpoint, so he didn't do that. But he still had a very large role for government, a large expansion of the role for government, large role for government intervention and regulation. He was totally on board with that. And yet, of course, people classify him as right-wing. The only people who deny Mussolini's right-wing status, there are some right-wing people who say, no, he was anti-market, therefore he's left. And I'm like, yeah, that doesn't really fit because there's obviously a lot of reasons why there's there are not many left-wing apologists for Mussolini, right? And that's they sense that he is in a different tribe. What was different about him? What was different is that he went and arrested a bunch of leftists. He went and banned the Italian Communist Party, that kind of thing. So he did go and crush the left, but that does not mean that he was pro-market. Uh, rather, he had his own views about what ought to be done, which did involve a very large role for government.
0: So being anti-market is mostly or close to necessary but not even close to sufficient to be a leftist. Yeah. yeah, correct.
1: right right now there's a, a very vocal movement of so-called national conservatives who want to have a much bigger role for government. they want industrial policy, they want restrictions on international trade and yet they don't like the left. they definitely don't like the left. They're trying to go and pursue what they think of as right as right- wing values through you know through government regulation. And like, yeah, you know, what is it? Well, we want to go and have strong families, and we want to go and take care of our working class and sort of revitalize the male working class. And like, I've actually written some essays uh, to people like this, saying, "Look, your no, your goals are great, but why do you need to go and be protectionist in industrial policy? How about we just deregulate housing, and then we can go and accomplish all of your goals? Like, let's do that." And actually, I'm much more optimistic that I can persuade them that I could go and persuade leftists about. To to go and like markets because I think that they are just much more fundamentally opposed to markets. I say this knowing very well that the actual Yimby movement is quite left wing, but I'll say they're really weird left wingers. They don't fit in with the rest of the movements. And I think a lot of them are probably kind of weak on things like public housing, right? But the main thing is that the typical leftist does not want to let a bunch of capitalist developers go and build tons of housing in California. No way.
0: Okay, so how does this description of left and right, wh- what, if anything, do you think it has to say about intra-left and intra-right mm. issues? Like imagine, you know, a legislature in a very red state and it's all red people amongst mm. themselves. There's a more left and a more right wing. Mm-hmm. You think it breaks down mm-hmm. in the similar way?
1: Yeah. Well, so to a large degree, yes, because like I said, there's differences in intensity. So in a state like, te- like Texas, you'll have your really hardcore right-wing people and you'll have your more moderate people. You'll have your people who want to ban abortion entirely, and you'll have one saying, I mean, it's kind of more complicated than that. Can't we just do 15 weeks? Or maybe even you'll have your pro-choice Republicans. So that stuff is actually not that not that uncommon. So those are the kinds of arguments they're having. And then similarly, definitely among the U.S. left, you'll have your hardcore socialists. And then you'll have what the socialist Democrats will call the corporate wing of the party which is total slander, they're not the corporate wing, but they are the ones that don't absolutely hate and detest business and the rich, which if you're in a group of people who are all complaining about markets, the ones who are saying, look, I'm I'm upset about markets too, but, and it's like, aha,
0: yeah, we got you. We so got amongst, you. so in, in that group, amongst a group of leftists having this kind of debate, you would expect okay. that the more left-wing side of it is going mm-hmm. to be the side that is more critical of markets and the less left-wing yeah. side is the side that's yeah. going to be more focused on criticizing the Yes, yes, leftists. more more
1: actually hate, more hateful, yes.
0: More hateful uh, of the the yes, yes. Far so in, ter- yeah,
1: in terms of like actually hating markets, yeah, I think that that is a great description of the far left wing of the Democratic Party. And in terms of hating the left, I think that is a great description of the far right wing of the Republican Party. You can even see that- No, actually- I mean
0: the far, the right wing of the Democratic Party. Is the right wing Ah, of the Democratic Party ah, distinguished by more antipathy to the far left?
1: Hmm, No, what I would say is that the far left wing, the far right wing of the Democratic Party are the ones who just hate Marcus the least. They're the ones who are like, oh, they're not that bad. I mean, obviously, we don't want it. We want to have some government. And again, the far left wing of the Republican Party, the ones saying, all right, look, the left, they're a bit annoying, but they're basically fellow Americans and we can work with them. That would That's what I think of. That's sort of the most left-wing Republican position is Democrats or other are fellow Americans and we can work with them. And the and the most right-wing position of the Democrats are, look, business is basically good, but it's got some problems. And of course, we deal with the problems, but we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. That's what I would think of as like the, the right-wing fanatic among the Democrats. <laughs> right? and it's like, that's the fanatic? It's like, yeah, of course. <laughs> But, uh, that's the one where everyone's glaring at them all the time going like, uh, why are you even here at our meeting?
0: These are the rhinos.
1: <laughs> yeah. the Rhinos and the dinos.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. I don't know if this actually is inconsistent with your theory. I think intuitively I, my views of left and right as broad categories are something like they're not helpfully thought of as real movements, but of coalitions that are mostly mostly distinguished by the inertia that has been caused by various historical accidents and compromises and negotiations that have happened between various political groups. You know, the fact that free traders ended up on one side of this or the other is mostly an accident and a result of inertia at this point. And that's probably true of a lot of particular issues or sub movements. But the whole grouping of the left and the right is just mostly this series of coalition accidents. Is that consistent with your theory or do you, what do you think about that? What I would say is I'll take your
1: view and divide it by two. So I think there is you know, a lot of inner logic to what's going on, but there's also a lot of plenty of illogic. You know, it's like, why is pro-life the Republican position and pro-choice the Democratic position? I think you'd easily see it being flipped around. I mean, in the same way, you know, like, you know, like why is veganism Democratic and, and the opposite view Republican? So these are ones where I think they could easily go the other way. You know, similarly, during COVID, a lot of people were saying, like, "Like, why is supporting harsh lockdowns the left-wing view and opposing the right-wing view? That was one where I, at first, I was like, hmm, but then I realized, no, it does make more sense because the leftist doesn't appreciate consumer society very much, so it doesn't really bother them that much to shut it down, and especially among your more radical leftists, like I read The Nation quite, right or quite reliably, like, they were obviously just slobbering with joy at... A world where no one goes to the office anymore, and where people just get paid by the government because you know, they are actually non-ironically using the phrase "wage slavery." It's like finally that we've ended wage slavery, or at least a respite from wage slavery, where the government just gives you money, which provides for your necessities. We shut down regular consumer societies; so you don't go spending on 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 sin and vice, but you get them basically you get like a nice, healthy living wage, regardless of whether you work or not, and that's sort of their ideal. Whereas the right appreciates consumer society considerably more. And yeah, like they don't like this idea of you get the same amount of money regardless of whether you're contributing or not. They're like they've got the common sense to be against that, right? But so I'd say, you know, there's a lot of specific issues where it's a, where it's kind of arbitrary, but nevertheless, the broad outline of, uh, and especially for intensity, especially for intensity. So it's common actually that there'll be an issue where I will go and agree with the left. And then I say, oh, but it's like their 50th most important issue, damn it. So, for example, immigration is one where the, you know, I think the left has a much better view, but when you go and ask them to rank it by importance, usually immigration is, is not in the top 10, whereas Republicans are a lot more likely to put that higher up. But when you look at the issues that Republicans really care about, it's just things about like wokeness and other things, you know, and just things that the, that the left really take, cares about and they want to, and transgenderism or whatever, and they want to go. and Culture war, just, red yeah, meat. Basically, they want, Republicans want to give the middle finger to the left on these issues, and those are the ones they're intense on. That makes sense. Yeah, and stay intense. Also, so immigration. Sometimes Republicans are really worked up or over it, but then other times it sort of goes down in intensity. But just like I don't like the left, I can't stand those jerks. Like why? Why won't they shut up? That's this that that I would say is just a guiding principle. I mean, you know, you, know, you know, like principles too strong. A guiding emotion, a guiding
0: emotion. And it probably makes sense with immigration because there's an element of the left's position on immigration that is the more market friendly position. Mm-hmm. It's more yeah. in favor of free labor markets. Uh mm-hmm. so it makes sense that even if that's their position, they're not passionate about it. Yes. And the parts of it they are passionate about are not the parts that are uniquely market centric. Like yeah, yeah. So they're I mean, the passionate more passionate probably about citizenship, yeah. for instance.
1: Yeah. yeah. or you know, or like I think the left cares a lot more about making sure that illegal immigrants get access to government benefits than that we have a lot of illegal immigrants
0: get in. Yes, that sounds right. Can you talk about your your general view on respect and how that plays into coalitions and where they're going to fall uh-huh. on the left or right spectrum? Yeah, great question. All right. Yeah. So we have a piece called the respect motive. And it comes
1: down to this. Why do we see that different demographics tend to be support different parties? Right. The most common view, going back to what we were saying at the beginning, is just objective self-interest. So, well, sure, whites are Republican because they're they're a rich race, and sure blacks are Democrats because they're a poor race. Right. But then it's like, hmm. This, there's so much this doesn't really explain, like Asians are richer than whites, but they're a lot more democratic than whites. That's odd. Or you can have things like Jews are much richer than Christians, but they're much more democratic. That's odd. Or you can go and say, huh, lawyers are rich, but they're very democratic. Hmm, what's going on? All right. So what I say is the single best predictor of which party a uh, any demographic group will support is whichever they will support, whichever party respects them more whichever party respects them more, which is a symbolic thing of do they, uh, do you get a sense that they think that you are great and better than other people? Right now, if your reaction to this is, well, I th- I respect them plenty. If you have to say that you don't really respect them. Real respect is where you go and you are just ready at a, at a moment's notice to go and start buttering them up and saying how wonderful they are. Right. So for example, just going down the list, like uh, teachers, right? which party respects teachers more? Now, no doubt Republicans say, well, we respect teachers. Which party respects them more?
0: Obviously. Obviously.
1: Yeah. Democrats respect them more. What about veterans? Republicans. Republicans obviously respect veterans more. Right. And then so on. So we're like right now, the very richest ethnicity American are Indian Americans. They've got a Democrat to Republican ratio about four to one. And so, yeah, well, why? Well, who's going to feel more comfortable at an Indian wedding? Democrats or Republicans? So, yeah, of course, Democrats feel more comfortable at the Indian wedding. You know, we're you know, like Republicans more likely to be like, oh, it's a, it's a fine wedding there. Why do they have to have their dot, these dots on their
0: heads? You know, that kind of thing.
1: And you know this from my dad. I can see, you know, he doesn't even have to talk. I can just look at him and see, you know, he's in the Middle Eastern restaurant and he just doesn't like seeing pictures of Iran on the wall, right? <laughs> you know, Very Republican, you know, like he's just one guy, but this is my general story. And then I've got a companion piece on like, why are Asians so democratic? Now, this also helps us to understand transitions over time. For over 100 years, the Democrats were, or the Catholics were, overwhelmingly Democratic. This has greatly changed. Right now, you can go and say, well, it's Roe versus Wade that kind of got the ball rolling. But if, a lot of it was Republicans were willing to go and say, hey, there's a whole lot of Democrats here, or, you know, and they're Catholics. So why don't I go and talk to them and you know, meet them at church and try to turn them, win them over and make, turn them into Republicans? The way that it works is, Step one is you have to make the first move, and you've got to start showing respect to a group that previously has not felt respected by you. And it's frustrating because it takes several years of buttering up a group before they start to believe that you're sincere and earnest in it. But eventually it works, and we do see very large demographic demographic shifts. where a group that was once very reliably voting for one part or the other, switches over. Of course, Blacks were totally Republican for 60 years and then flipped over to being Democrats. These kinds of things do happen. It's hard, but it, but I think
0: that this respect is key. How do these two theories interact? Yeah. Are they in conflict at all? It seems like this is a causal yeah. theory about why people end up in the left or the right. And then this, the other theory is like what the defining features they tend to come to have once they're in the left or the right. Yeah. I
1: mean, I guess I would say that my simplistic theory is more for people that care about ideas at all. Okay. <laughs> and most people actually are just not very intellectual. They just find this stuff super boring. I think that has a lot to do with it. So there's a lot of people who will just sort of get involved based upon which group they feel more comfortable in, and then they start repeating the slogans and policy stuff. Though, you know, like one standard thing in public opinion is a lot of people say that they they support a party and they don't even understand what the party's positions are.
0: Yeah, that yeah. that always blows my mind, uh, reading that, you know, a lot of people don't know which party is even considered more on the left or the right or what's the... Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the higher levels of obliviousness, but just not knowing which party favors more government spending or higher taxes, you know, that's one where like, wow, you really don't know that. You just have to really understand how incredibly boring this fascinating podcast
0: would be for most people. <laughs> it's tragic it's tragic yeah, i mean
1: like, like it's incomprehensible chris this is fantastic
0: the only i yeah. i understand it all too well and because probably the central reason yeah. that i started doing but it like was you. so that i could forge an outlet for myself because most of my irl friends are not interested um yeah so and, this you, is, and, and i'm
1: guessing you're not up to a billion followers yet in real life
0: yeah yeah halfway there you're not,
1: you're not beating elon musk
0: yet no nope, not not yet i'm waiting right? and then
1: you, you look at like his twitter followers like why come everyone's listening to elon it's like oh like, he's just such a f- cool guy. Some of it is just antagonizing left, and some of it is just shooting from the hip. A lot of it is he, he's just like such a winner. He walks around like he owns the world. Who doesn't want to listen to that guy?
0: Even people who don't like him. I mean, yeah, it's magnetic. You've got a great essay in here that I think falls in a tradition of libertarian arguments about what a socialist can do in a capitalist society mm-hmm. to find mm-hmm. socialism. And I think, you know, a strong argument, I'm sure people made it before Nozick, but a strong Mm -hmm. argument for capitalism is that within capitalism socialism or some variants of socialism are not just allowed but they're welcome and and you know most libertarians will be like yeah you want to try out a commune go ahead start a kibbutz you ought to be free to do that and then more power to you and if it works out great (laughs) maybe i'll visit maybe i'll even join but the reverse is very much not the case that uh capitalist firms are not allowed under communism Can you say a little bit about what a socialist should do Mm -hmm. under capitalism if they want to achieve this goal and and what you think about that just on a personal level?
1: Right. So a lot of times libertarians libertarians just give this argument or really just anyone who doesn't like like socialists gives this argument just to go and insult them and try to humiliate them and belittle them. Whereas I actually wrote this thing saying, look, I'm going to go and try to help you. Like, honestly, I'm not just trying to go and screw with your head. I'm not trying to make fun of you. I'm just saying, look, if I were you, what would I do, right? If I really had some great distaste for markets, if I really didn't want to go and have a regular job, this kind of thing. And I'd say, you know, like, you know, like if I just wanted to go and de-emphasize consumerism, what would I do? And I said, like, step one is adopt a frugal lifestyle. It's pretty easy. There's a lot of very cheap places in this country to live. You can move to Lubbock, Texas. It's really cheap there. I've been there. I'm not making it up. You can totally do it, right? So that's step one. Right, you know, and then you know, cut out lots of luxury purchases. There's lots of luxury purchases. If you think the world is enough for our need, but not enough for our greed, fine. Go down to your need, right? In that case, you will be spending very little money. Once you're spending very little money, you don't need to work very much, right? You could either go and just do an easy job for low pay, right? You know, but one where you just like it just doesn't require much of you. Or you could go and do a harder job part-time, or you could do like a regular job for a small number of years, save most of the money, and then just live off of that for the rest of your life. These are all very doable things. And then, you know, you say, well, you know, my kids need Nikes. It's like, well, if you really care about this stuff, shouldn't you go and teach your kids nobody needs Nikes? We're not the kind of people that care about that kind of thing, right? So why not do that? Now, in terms of what I think this means, of course, one possibility is that no socialist has figured out what I'm telling them. I think, it's pr- I think it's pretty obvious, so I think it'd be hard for them to have not have thought of it. I think the real story is they don't want to live in a way that they want government to make most people live. Now there is, of course, the kind of socialist, really like your classical Marxist, who thinks socialism is going to give us fantastic consumer society. Let's a fantastic consumer society, better than the one we've got. All that right, used so, to be
0: more common than it yeah, is now, I think.
1: Right, but anyway, so but for all the others that, that that are just pushing the world is enough for our need but not enough for our greed. All right, well, nobody's stopping you. So yeah, I think it does show that they don't really actually believe what they're saying and that they want to have a fairly normal life in a capitalist society. They don't find this lifestyle they're preaching very, uh, very appealing. Right now, they might say, well, yeah, it's not appealing at the individual level, but it goes and solves a bunch of global problems that have nothing to do with my personal life. But again, I think very few have worked out a position like this. I think it's more of socialism is an affectation.
0: It's not something that people really want to go and do. Do you relate with any of the recommendations you gave?
1: I would say the main one that I relate to is if you're if you, if the best job you can get is one that you don't like, then cut down on your consumerism a lot. So, like I happen to be super fortunate; I have a very high-paid job and career where I I just make enough money. I don't need to think about money, and my wife makes more money than me. So for me, it's just not really an issue. But still, like often I'm buying things, and I'm thinking if I had an actual job that I didn't really like doing, there's no way I would spend money on this stuff. Right. I would be very carefully saving money so that I could stop doing what I don't want to do. And then I could go and live in a more pleasant and fulfilling way. Right. And like I, I will say, like, I'm someone who's not actually finding much fulfillment in material possessions. And when someone goes and says that I should buy something, my honest inner reaction is, oh, God, that's going to be such a pain to do it. And there's the installation and there's this and like will be the right one and will the pieces match. and oh, At this stage of my life, like, I've got the possessions that I want. I think the last material possession that I ever really deeply wanted was a pool table. And I got that about eight years ago. And since then, there hasn't really been anything material that I've been all that excited about. The only thing that I'm really actually happy to spend money on is travel. And for everything else, I'm just like, yeah, like, you know, like, I've got the stuff I want. I don't need more stuff. Everything's fine. And... I would rather go and put my energy into friendships and just doing fun things with friends. That's what means a lot to me. So if I didn't have such good options in the labor market, I would definitely have just tried to go and live frugally, make my money and then retire early and then try to maybe, maybe try to do something that was either low, you know, like a low-paid job that I liked or maybe just volunteering, something like that. You know, I could see that In a different world, I might have just gone into finance or CS, worked until I was, say, 35 or 40, and then just retired and then been tried to be like a YouTuber or something like that.
0: What's your favorite essay
1: in this book? Favorite essay in the book. Let's see. Hold on. All right. So I got the book here. So which is my very favorite essay? And you're definitely right that the ideological Turing test is the most influential essay in the book. In a way... It never occurred to me, actually, but I could have actually, I, I, it might have been better for me to call the book The Ideological Turing Test Essays on Political Rationality instead. Although I did really like the idea of having the mad scientists on the cover.
0: Yeah, no, that's um, good. And that would be a great title because it's a famous mm-hmm. essay, but Voters yes. as Mad Scientists is, is very catchy and captures a lot of what yes. it's about. I think actually my very favorite one is the last one The Freedom to Do What Sounds Wrong. This is an
1: essay where I say, look, friends of freedom have long stood up for the right to do wrong. Uh, I disagree with what you're doing with your freedom, but I'll defend your right to to do it because it's your person, your stuff. You should be able to live your own way. And what I say here is, all right, that's all good. But a lot of what government does is just prevent people from doing good things. And I think that it's actually more important to be free to do good things than to do bad things. It's more important for people to be free to build housing than to manufacture heroin like housing is like it's like a basic human need like like how could someone be against that how why are you stopping people from going and building skyscrapers in san francisco what in the world would possess a person to go and prevent someone from doing this great stuff that's where i'm just like it doesn't make i'm just it's just crazy and say well they're blocking my light like that is such a petty stupid complaint just quiet i don't want everyone to hear anything like that again we people should be able to build skyscrapers as many as they want as tall as they want. Quiet. Right. Whereas, if like if someone were to say, "Well, I'm worried about kids doing heroin," it's like, "Okay, yeah, I'm worried about kids doing heroin too. That's a reasonable worry. Let's talk about it." So, the freedom to do what sounds wrong, I think, is my very favorite one.
0: And is that going to be? I listened to your your interview with Richard Panaya. Sounds like the theme of that essay is going to play a big role in the tone of Unbeatable.
1: Uh, that's correct. Yes. Uh, so, I'm writing a book right now called Unbeatable: The Brutally Honest Case for Free Markets, and in that book, I Offer what I claim is, is a new argument in favor of markets and against government. And it's not absolutely un, you know, unprecedented, but I think I'm the first person that is saying it really clearly, and that is the great neglected thing about markets is markets do good stuff that sounds bad. And the great neglected bad thing about governments is they do bad stuff that sounds good. Markets go and produce all of the shameful, embarrassing products that give people great joy in life they don't want to give a speech in favor of. People don't want to have to get, get in front of the society and give a speech saying alcohol is great for the following 17 reasons. They just want to go and buy it without being judged and get it and enjoy it. And that's what markets let them do. Markets don't make you write an essay explaining why you want risky. They just sell it to you. And on the flip side, government does all the bad stuff that sounds good. Government is there saying, "Look, we should only be able to go and, and uh, build a building if we're sure that it's not going to have any negative impacts on anyone in the local neighborhood. The only way to do that is to stop people from building anything. What a terrible thing to do. It sounds good, but it is terrible. The good thing is to ignore a bunch of petty complaints, bulldoze the historic homes in San Francisco after buying them from the owners, and put skyscrapers there. That is the mm-hmm. good thing to do.
0: It can, should, and must be done. I agree with you completely. And even as you say it, you're right. I can just picture people cringing because of how it sounds. Yeah. I'm, I'm very like, much looking so forward to So you want to get effort.
1: rid of all these historic homes. No, I get rid of. I want, let's get rid of all the historic buildings that do not pass the market test. If there's ones that people love so much that the owners can charge that much extra rent for for them, instead of replacing them, great. Let the Empire State Building stay for a thousand years,
0: and they don't I'm, have to sell. Yes,
1: yeah. Even if but they if can't make shop, money, but if it's like the, you know, the typical historic walk-up in San Francisco would be bulldozed tomorrow if the market
0: allowed it, or you know, if regulations allowed it. Yeah you know, cuz they couldn't say cuz they couldn't say no to how much Yeah, if yeah, someone come
1: it. along, I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you double market price get, like, but you have to move but move today since we're breaking ground tomorrow. Right? That like the prices are so high that that's how people running the business would be. It's like tick-tock, every second we talk we're losing a million bucks. Right? This is we're going to build a 10 billion dollar skyscraper where these stupid houses are and we're going to tr- and, and
0: we're going to make so much money. Get out now. End of talk. Here's your money. Leave. So by my count, Unbeatables, the brutally honest case for free markets coming out, you're still further down the road talking about poverty, who to blame. Yes. Closer, you have Build Baby Build, right? Yes. So
1: yeah, I mean, that one, the data's just been pushed a little bit, but the quality will be top notch. So the now it's expected to come out in April 2024. You're build? the first person hearing this. Breaking it's, news. Uh, it's, just, it's getting getting pushed just a little bit. But like, I don't want to rush it last minute and have it be anything less than a timeless graphic novel that people will look at and peruse with pleasure
0: for a hundred years. I absolutely believe it because Open Borders was that, well, it hasn't been a hundred years, but
1: they will, there will be <laughs> people reading the people read the book in a hundred years. Like, Happy to I, I, bet on I it. I feel good about listening. it. Like I'm, I'm, no doubt in my mind, people will say, wow, this is cool.
0: So order, you've got unbeatable, build, baby, build, poverty, who to blame? Uh, yes, that's that's correct. So that
1: that one will be coming out later. Uh, but actually, I've also got four more books of essays that'll be coming out What's probably uh, probably in the next two to three years. I've published four this is my fourth book in a eight book series. All so the all other ones books, we've uh, got yeah, interviews so I,
0: with check out older uh, episodes,
1: everyone. Oh, yeah yeah, so voters of mad scientists, essays and political rationality. that's available now, 12 bucks in the paperback, 99 on ebook. and there's three other such books of essays. Despite horrible Biden inflation, I have not been raising prices, so buy today. And what's the next one called? The next one will be called You Will Not Stampede Me Essays on Nonconformism, I think. I'd say, yes, I'm a longtime nonconformist. And these are all my essays about being a nonconformist and getting away with
0: it. Do you have any recommendations for books or authors or essays that you think complement this one, Voters as Mad Scientists, particularly hmm. well? Let's see. Well,
1: yes, um, the famous books of Phil Tetlock, so Super Forecasting and Expert Political Judgment. Those are fantastic compliments to my book.
0: Working on a new book right now, isn't he?
1: I know he's you know, he's wrapping up a new project involving existential risk. Okay. So, but I don't know whether that's
0: going to be a book or not. I forget what it was. I emailed him and he said he was too busy now, but he would come on the show and talk to me about his next project when it was, when All right, it was excellent. done. Excellent. And where can people
1: find you if they want to keep up with your work? Uh, so I'm bkaplan.com. I'm on Twitter as Brian underscore Kaplan. And then I've got a Substack, which is just called Bet
0: on It to include all of those places as well as the recommendations and a link to this book where people can buy it on the show notes. My guest today has been Brian Kaplan and his book once again is Voters as Mad Scientists, Essays on Political Irrationality. Brian, thank you so much for joining me. It's been another great pleasure, Chris. Keep it up. Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.